from the world's greatest movie library. The most ruthless hunter in the universe is coming to Los Angeles, and he's got a weekend to kill. Sir, it's circling around behind him. You see some cover, your boys have been made. Get him out! Prepare yourself. Danny Glover, Gary Busey. Predator 2, 10.30 Eastern, Thursday night on TBS. Parental discretion advised. The November 1992 cover dated Wizard Magazine number 15 offered an article on Dark Horse by Rob Samsel. Dark Horse. This is usually a term reserved for a person or entity regarded as a long shot for success. Maybe back in 1986 when Mike Richardson took the hard-earned profits from his empire of seven comic stores and launched his comic publishing biz. That was how he saw his chances of competing in the ever-expanding comics marketplace as a long shot. After six years of mainstream acceptance, millions of comics sold, and widespread critical acclaim, Mike Richardson's Probable early worries seem way off the mark. With a bent toward creator-owned properties and licensed movie characters, Dark Horse has carved out a niche in the market in which few, if any, other independent comic companies can lay claim. Switch to the present, and we're looking at a combination of such past Dark Horse winners as Godzilla, Aliens, Robocop, The Mask, Terminator, Dark Horse Presents, and Cheval Noir, with current hits like Grendel, Nexus, John Byrne's Next Men, James Bond 007, The American, Vampirella, and the promising crossover Predator vs. Magnus Robot Fighter. Whew. Let's take a second to catch our breath after reviewing that spectacular body of work. What we're going to get in this overview is a look at some of Dark Horse's past artistic editorial successes, as well as, thanks to some extremely generous help and cooperation from Dark Horse's Dave Weigel and Randy Stradley, some current and future plans and directions for the Oregon-based company. Dark Horse has been collecting movie licenses to produce new adventures, taking fans before and beyond the original screen adaptations, delving further into the mythos of the characters. Godzilla was the first, followed by the Predator miniseries and an adaptation of The Abyss, which was particularly great because it took a movie that was too long to sit through and put it into a more enjoyable form. The new licensing deal involved the big-time popular Aliens franchise, regarded as the acquisition that helped put Dark Horse over the top. They began their series in black and white in the monthly anthology series Dark Horse Presents, then came a ridiculously popular miniseries in genuine living color. The people at Dark Horse, being no marketing dummies, put two and two together to create the sensational best-selling series featuring the galaxy's two bad boys in the Red Hot Aliens vs. Predator miniseries. While all this gruesome fun was going on, we were treated to the mayhem that our cyborg pal Terminator can create. Dark Horse has followed up their impressive initial batch of licensed miniseries with further adventures of Aliens, Predator, and Terminator in one-shots and miniseries featuring the entire trio. With the Terminator license gone, a slew of new licensed material has nevertheless been filtered out of Dark Horse. Titles like Indiana Jones, Young Indiana Jones, Star Wars, and Robocop have been eagerly snapped up, with Dark Horse's market share enjoying a steady upswing. When working on a movie-based product, Project, the creators work independently of the studios, although each story does need studio approval before printing to ensure proper continuity for each character. Comic legend John Byrne himself has checked in at Dark Horse. His Next Men project, currently enjoying a great deal of fan interest, was born out of a failed deal with Marvel. Next Men was originally supposed to be a title in the new 2099 promotion, but was rejected. Undaunted, Byrne brought the project to Dark Horse and was given a graphic novel, 2112, and Next Men was introduced in the pages of the ubiquitous Dark Horse Presents before becoming its own monthly series series this past winter. Now that we've reviewed the strong past of Dark Horse, we'll take a little space to look at some of the exciting projects on tap for the near future. While the Robocop 3 adaptation was scheduled for publication months ago, we've yet to see it. This is due to the fact the financially strapped studio has yet to release the film version of Robocop 3. As of this writing, Orion has no firm release date available, so it will be a while before you see the miniseries and those stunning painted covers by Wizard No. 13 cover artist Nelson. Yet another movie-related project that Dark Horse has ready to go is the adaptation of the third Evil Dead movie, Army of Darkness. 
It appears the movie will be released in January, but noted Hollywood screenwriter director Sam Raimi, Darkman, has already given the okay for Dark Horse to roll the project out whenever they see fit. Terminator Endgame is the final installment of Dark Horse's excellent Terminator run. In Endgame, they plan to use the three issues to tie up all the loose plot threads from previous projects and have a tremendous conclusion. A future product, which you may already have by the time this article sees print, that has piqued the interest of comics purists nationwide is the forthcoming Predator vs. Magnus Robot Fighter. The initial Dark Horse Valiant crossover should bring us a nice big melee, with both characters striving for the Exo Man of War helmet. Set in the 41st century, this saga will be scripted by longtime independent writer John Ostrander, not Jim Shooter as originally planned. The new Predator project after the Valiant crossover will be Race Wars. Well-known crime novelist Andrew Vox will be writing a novel-style script for Race Wars. Randy Stradley will adapt it to comic form. Due in January of 93, Race Wars will be penciled by new art guy Jordan Raskin, who gets the sidebar article. Race War will be an original three-part serial in Dark Horse Presents, with the first installment being inked by John Beatty. Bob Vicek will ink the rest. The title's debut will affect Dark Horse color guy Sean Tierney, since the invisibility effect from the movie is being adapted for the comic. When Predator is supposed to be invisible, artist Raskin will draw him on an overlay. The image of the Predator will then be computer scanned, with the shattered image of the Predator being warped into the background. This will create the effect of invisibility. Sounds like really cool stuff. In 93, Dark Horse will be unveiling another project featuring the Predator, Invasion from the Fourth Dimension. Scheduled to be released as a one-shot, Invasion will boast another special effect designed to enhance the Predator's invisibility cloaking. He will be printed using a special process so that you'll only be able to see him using a pair of glasses provided with the comic. It strikes me as supremely weird that, with as much nerd information as has been compiled on the internet, sales figures during the comic book boom are still so elusive. I know the data exists because I have a bunch of it myself, but seeing it migrating to a comprehensive database so glacially is a fucking drag. The most obvious repository is Comicron, but you're lucky if you have half a year's worth of monthly data for the first part of the 90s. I also feel like now would be a good time to get our bearings with a review of Dark Horse's Aliens and Predator titles of 1992. The year began with Aliens Genocide at the halfway point. The miniseries' debut had been ranked number 19 among November 1991's top 100 comics and unit sales, as reported by Amazing Heroes magazine number 197. Capital City reported sales of 58,775 copies on that first issue. But again, you need to at least double that number to account for all the other distributors that were out there in the early 90s. So at least 120,000, 140,000. That made it the top selling non-Marvel DC comic for that month, followed closely by a Terminator debut and a Predator issue. It was enough to give Dark Horse an 8.13% share of the market. The second issue had ranked number 23 as reported by Amazing Heroes number 198. Capital sales were 43,325. Dark Horse enjoyed 8.67% of the North American comics market for the month, and the top five independent comics were all their titles. Star Wars Dark Empire was the first and ranked number 19 in overall comic sales. Genocide was second, then Predator Cold War number four, Terminator the Enemy Within number two, and finally the debut of The Thing from Another World. Batman vs. Predator had begun publishing at DC Comics on December 3rd, 1991. After Aliens vs. Predator number 1 outsold Uncanny X-Men, Dark Horse was looking for other opportunities at crossover gold. Surely the box office champion of 1989 would serve, and Dark Horse has long had a chummy relationship with DC. Surprisingly, Warner Brothers had no issue with publishing a comic featuring 20th Century Fox's IP. I guess retroactively it also counts as a DC Marvel crossover now. Dave Gibbons had been trying to establish himself as a writer while still drawing the Give Me Liberty comics from Frank Miller's scripts. He'd already written Batman in the world's finest prestige format miniseries and was also in the employ of Dark Horse for the Martha Washington material. At the top of his list to draw the project were the Kubert brothers, based on their work on the Adam Strange miniseries. There was an odd scheme where the books came out in two formats, a square-bound prestige format series on Baxter paper for $4.95. It featured Arthur Sidem covers and bound in trading cards by the likes of John Byrne, Matt Wagner, Todd McFarlane, and Mike Mignola. There was also
also a newsstand edition for $1.95 with, of course, Warner covers. The first part was the second best-selling comic of the month after Wolverine number 50, while ahead of several different editions of the second Robin miniseries in that month's X-Men. God only knows what the newsstand sales were like. The first issue I have, Capital City Numbers 4, is a newsstand edition of number 2 at 40,750 copies. The prestige format version was 66,050 copies. Number 3 newsstand, 34,850 copies. Prestige format, 61,200 copies. And then the collection of the three issues for 595 sold 91,900 copies through Capital City. I think those numbers are extremely low ball relative to the total sales. The newsstand probably had a pretty solid sell through. So if you even go to the newsstand, you're looking at hundreds of thousands of copies typically. You have the multiple distributors and just the simple fact that we know that X-Men comics in that time period were selling somewhere in the realm of half a million copies per month. So to outsell them and to outsell them by a fairly wide margin, you got to be looking at closer to three quarters of a million copies of each issue. And I certainly recall a lot of people who didn't have much in the way of comics in their collection having copies of those books. So the market penetration on those and the diversity of that market were probably considerable compared to, again, say X-Men. 1993's Batman vs. Predator, the collected edition, came with a whopping $5.95 cover price. Remember those days? And emblazoned on the back cover, winner of the 1991 Eisner Award for Best Inking. Dave Givens provided the painted cover. This thing comes with three separate introductions. You cannot get a publisher to spring for an introduction anymore. This thing got three of them. The first was by Dennis O'Neill. I absolutely love looking good without having to work hard. So the Batman vs. Predator series was a wonderful project for me. It was both critically and financially successful, and since I was listed as a co-editor, everyone assumed that I had actually edited it. Not exactly untrue, but not exactly true either. What I did was talk the real editor, Diana Schutz, on the phone occasionally. Look at the scripts and artwork as she faxed them to our offices, and maybe, maybe, make a red mark on them once in a while. While I'm working with people named Gibbons, Kubert, and Schutz, I know the job will be good. All I really have to decide is how big a pain I'm going to be in a quest for whatever I define as best that day. Oh, I did one other thing. Ate lunch. Two Augusts ago, I found myself at an outdoor cafe in San Diego's Horton Plaza, enjoying the Southern California sunshine, expense account pasta, and Dave Gibbons, who, as always, was witty, genial, and just sly enough to keep me fully alert. Dave and Diana had already settled all the dreary details that sometimes make editors feel like accountants. Deadlines, shipping schedules, vouchering systems, permissions, delivery dates, leaving me nothing but the fun stuff. Discussing plot and especially character. The questions we had to answer were, one, do Batman and Predator belong in the same story? Two, if they do, should the story be part of the Batman mythos? And three, if it isn't, what should it be part of? Cancel that last one. It doesn't exist because the answers to the first two are yes and yes. The only test I've ever found for judging the artistic credibility of using a character from one fictional universe in another such universe is this. If the character were presented fresh as a new creation, would he be acceptable? So, if a writer suggested an extraterrestrial with advanced weaponry and a hunter-killer ethos as the villain of a Batman series, would I buy it? Well, yes, possibly, with a lot of misgivings and hesitation. We generally put the planet-hopping variety of science fiction off-limits to Batman scripters. Batman's roots are in the dark myths. Vampires, demons, were-creatures, ogres, all the shadow beings that creep from the nether side of the human psyche. Rocket ships and Batman are not a good mix. Our Cape Crusader may use technology, he has to, to be a credible crime fighter in the 20th century, but he is not of technology. It has nothing to do with what he is, and it has nothing to do with what the Predator is either. Take a look at him and then search your memory for predecessors. Shiva, Satan, Grendel, the Fenris Wolf, the Fiends, the Devils, the Devourer, the Enemies of Mercy and Humanity. Those are the Predator's kinfolk. Do we really care that he arrived by spacecraft instead of being belched up from a fiery pit? Not unless we're very picky indeed. What's important is that he's here, suddenly among us. 
us, hateful and threatening, and our champion must meet him in mortal combat. That this champion is himself clothed in darkness is, in fact, a dark knight whose identity was forged in tragedy, only makes the contest more interesting. Given all that, I could, with an editorial conscience as clear as the San Diego sky, tell Dave Gibbons he had my blessing. That man shouldn't tangle with just any old bug-eyed monster who slides through the ozone. But the Predator was the right alien for him to fight. Finishing my after-meal espresso, I felt confident that Dave and the Kubert brothers, Adam and Andy, were the talents for the job. All I had to do was relax and wait to start looking good. Dennis O'Neill, New York, New York, August 1992. And now an introduction by Diana Schutz. Dave Givens used to call it our Batman versus Predator thing. Those weekly phone calls in which he and I would scour the latest batches of pages from the Kuberts, spotting lettering mistakes or other potential problems in an effort to nip them in their proverbial bud before going to press. Due to the time difference between Oregon and England, these phone calls always seemed to take place during UK happy hour, with Dave comfortably ensconced next to his bat phone, beer in hand. Or was it just Dave's own personal happy hour? I know it was mine. At this year's San Diego Comic-Con, six months after the last of the three issues of Batman vs. Predator had been put to bed, that old karmic wheel did its particular thing, and the project finally came full circle for Ye Editor. It's a Saturday afternoon, and I'm attending the Eisner Awards presentation, propped up by a single scone and several lattes in a vain attempt to compensate for too many nights of too little sleep and too much fun. Concrete creator Paul Chadwick is on the stage next to Will Eisner, announcing the 1991 award for Best Inker. Adam Kubert. Good lord, I'd forgotten that Adam had even been nominated. Some editor, huh? Just as I'm becoming aware of a not gentle poking in the ribs from my compadre Bob Shrek, who hisses, get up there! Paul, bless his own Eisner-winning soul, requests my presence on stage to accept the award for Adam, who naturally is back at home, safe in New Jersey with his wife Joyce and their two children. One thing you need to know, most humans hate speaking in public. It is our most common single fear. I forget where I heard that, but I don't doubt it for a minute. I know that even the prospect of public speaking precipitates in me a set of physiological events that are all wobbly and uncontrollable. And in a perfect world, I would have been on the beach that afternoon, soaking up some California UVs with colorist Sherlyn Van Valkenburg, rather than in that convention hall, summoned by Paul, prodded by Bob. What else could I do? I kicked off my shoes, gulped a deep breath of conditioned air, and ran to the stage. Nearly dissolving in Mr. Eisner's handshake, I mean Will Eisner, if you please, I turned to face the audience, seeing nothing, and burbled out some words about Adam, his brother Andy, their father Joe, and a third generation of Kubert talent already evincing itself in Adam's three-year-old son Max, who spends his days in dad's studio, working at a little drawing table right up next to Adam's. And then I got the hell out of there, without saying anything about Batman vs. Predator. Not a word about my merciless browbeating to meet inhuman deadlines, suffered by both Adam and Andy in the course of producing the series. Not a word of their unflagging cheerfulness when asked to, um, amend their art. Always an occupational hazard in licensed projects, especially double licensed projects like this one. Not a word about Sherry's lush color art, betraying not for a moment her equally truncated schedule. Not a word about Dave's clever scripts or those happy hour phone calls. Not even a word about those for schlugginer trading cards keeping me awake all those nights. But I don't want to talk about them anyway. Actually, I do want to say one thing about the trading cards. Something that slipped through the weekly happy hour calls. The back of Dave Gibbons's card was supposed to read as follows. Dave Gibbons is one of the few British comic illustrators who is not named John. However, his twin brother, who writes comic books, is also called Dave. And to the production gremlins who transpose the sequence of some of these words, um, it was a joke. At some point during those weekly happy hour calls, and probably coincidental in the increase in sleeplessness fostered by those aforementioned for Schlugener trading cards, I began to tease Dave, even though he bailed me out of hot water on one of them, suggesting more than once that when the orders filtered in and the monies were paid, when all was said and finally done, he'd owe me a drink, at least, if not a trip to his local pub. Well, in San Diego this past summer, all was said and done. Not only did Dave buy me that long-promised drink after all, but he swears he slipped the bartender a bill or two just to card me. What a gentleman, that Gibbons boy. Any day now, I'm sure he'll be booking my flight to those merry shores of his native England. Diana Schutz, Milwaukee, Oregon, August 1992. And finally, briefly, 
forward by Dave Gibbons. Conflict is the essence of drama. Anyone got a problem with that? Good. Then we're going to get along just fine. The way I see it, comic books, by their very nature, tend to favor larger-than-life characters, shorthand expression of emotions, and an accelerated narrative pace. Take this to an extreme, and what have you got? Well, when Titans Clash strikes about the right note. Way back in the 40s, someone had the idea of pitting Submariner against the Human Torch. Water gets fire, right? Right. The book walked off the stands. A quarter century later, the Hulk and the Thing slugged it out for the first time. Instant comic milestone. Then another unsung visionary had the idea of pitting DC Comics with Superman and Marvel's Spider-Man against each other in an unprecedented cross-company bout. It was a comic book fight fan's dream ticket. It wasn't long before Batman faced off the Hulk, then Captain America and Wonder Woman got in on the act. Even Muhammad Ali jumped into the ring to trade punches with the Man of Steel. But by the time the Teen Titans took on the X-Men, with the Justice League and the Avengers waiting in the dressing room, a truce was called. That's the trouble with fights. Someone has to be the loser, and nobody wanted to be their guy. Unless, of course, their guy has made it his career out of being so nasty that people will pay money to see him lose. You know, like if he was a diabolically ugly mass murderer from another planet, for instance. Which is just what Dark Horse discovered, in spades, when they put the creatures from the movies Aliens and Predator together in the same comic book. Win or lose, they both won. Given all this, the concept of pairing Batman and Predator seems an obvious one now, like all strokes of genius. Credit for the idea goes to Dark Horse publisher Mike Richardson, who, at 6'6 six six and 210 pounds, is the kind of guy I'm happy to call a genius any day of the week. Fighter or not, I'm not stupid. Anyhow, I was so knocked out by the whole notion that it took me far less than a 10 count to agree to script the book. And once the Kubrick brothers and Sherilyn threw their hats in the ring too, and Diana and Denny agreed to manage us, I knew we had a fighting chance of going the distance. But enough talk, enough bad boxing jokes already. Time for me to duck out between the ropes before one of those beer bottles hits me. Time for the main event. Dave Gibbons, Hertfordshire, England, August 1992. And it's funny because the book was scripted before the movie Predator 2 had come out and everybody involved acknowledged the weird coincidence of how similar the two plots are. Basically, Predator shows up in a major metropolitan area, starts killing off mobsters, attracts the attention of a crime fighter. Crime fighter loses the first round badly, eventually recovers to battle the Predator. And at the end, a bunch of Predators come down, take back the Predator who had been running rampant and presented the protagonist with a weapon in acknowledgement of their fighting skills. At least that's what I gather from tossing through the pages of the book. I've never been a fan of the Kuberts. This looks like a Batman story to me. I'm super not interested. And I know that it's basically, it's being done in the 90s, but you don't tend to associate Batman versus Predator with Chromium Age type stuff. But when Batman puts on that super pointy armor specifically to fight the Predator, or when Jim Gordon's running around in a trench coat with a fucking Dracula collar, and essentially it becomes a cape flapping behind him. Everybody's got these gigantic guns. It's really, really, really 90s. Oh, and as a typical Batman story, most of the second chapter, he's knocked on his ass, and everybody's wondering if he's abandoned Gotham City and all that fucking bullshit. I know Gotham City is a terrible place, but at least give it the weekend before you declare that Batman's abandoned you forever, you know? So one of the nice things with the collected edition is they also give you the trading card artwork or as full-page pinups. Some of the people that I'm not sure got mentioned in the reading of the Amazing Heroes blurbs, Mike Kaluta, Art Adams, Tim Sale, Joe Kubert, Tony Harris, Steve Rude, Sam Keith, and Jackson Geis. There's also a cover gallery. I gotta say, I think the Arthur Saddam covers suck. I think they're lousy and bland and clunky. Chris Warner covers are just way more dynamic and much more attractive. I think they definitely got wrong which cover should be on the premium format version. Oh yes, I completely forgot. Batman vs. Predator inspired one of the first really big, well-received fan films, 2003's Batman Dead End. I'm not even sure we had a YouTube then, so I'm not sure how people were seeing it. I think it might have been shown at conventions at the time, but I remember this huge hubbub, but it was on the comic book sites and stuff. Completely forgot that thing existed, of course. Sandy Calora. Oh, wow. <laughs> that was a blast from the 
pass right there. Getting back to Aliens Genocide with number three, it was January 1992's number 27 title per diamond, as reported by Wizard Magazine number eight. However, it was only ranked 30th according to Capital City Distribution's internal correspondence newsletter, with 37,025 copies sold through them. As reported to Amazing Heroes number 199, that was still good enough for third place among indie comics after Predator Bloody Sands of Time number one and John Byrne's Nextman number one. Dark Horse held 6.26% of the market, Genocide number four ranked 20th for Diamond Distribution and 22nd for Capital City, with exactly 34,000 copies sold. Having brought up Bloody Sands of Time, it sold quite a bit better than the original Predator miniseries and the miniseries Bad Blood that would follow it, but not as well as Big Game from 1991. Bloody Sands sold through Capital City, 40,625 copies of the first issue, 32,675 copies of the second issue. This is in comparison to Big Game, which had 53,900 copies of its first issue. So that's a disparity of about 11,000 copies. Also considerably less than Cold War. Number one of that one sold 56,050 copies. So that's a 16,000 copy difference. And again, you have to use the multiplier for the different distributors. The copy for number two reads, The discovery of a long lost diary leads to an investigation of predator visits to Earth during World War One. With the planet coming apart at the seams, we discovered that the Kaiser wasn't the only one interested in world domination. Written, penciled, and colored by comics legend Dan Barry, Indiana Jones, and inked by fan favorite artist Chris Warner, Terminator. $2.50, 32 four color pages with a four color cover by Dan Barry. I went ahead and flipped through Bloody Sands of Time again for the first time in God knows how long, possibly decades. Surprisingly more sexual situations and nudity than I was expecting. I had a much higher tolerance for Dan Barry's artwork than I had as a 90s kid. I think that Chris Warner's inks probably helped a little bit with that. Still, watching the Predator do its thing within the confines of trench warfare, it just way too historical for me. Felt too much like a classics illustrated instead of a Predator comic. But it's gory as fuck. I mean, there's beheadings and, and spine ripping and, and landmines and all kinds of nastiness. There was also a sequence in Vietnam, so that's a little bit more in the mind frame I would have been in from the 80s going into the 90s with all the Vietnam movies that were out. I don't want to read that. Publisher summary is featured on the Xenopedia website. It reads, The discovery of a long-lost diary leads to an investigation of predator visits during World War One. With the planet coming apart at the seams, we discover that the Kaiser wasn't the only one interested in world domination. And the plot... Oof, okay, the syntax on this was a little fucked. A strange carnage in the Nicaraguan jungle for which an U.S. soldier is blamed, responsible, leads his defender, Central Intelligence Agency operative Griggs Irving, to recall similar incidents registered in South Vietnam in 1968 and in France during World War I. The giveaway promotional pamphlet Dark Horse Insider relaunched as a staple edition with comic book dimensions, beginning with a January 1992 cover date and a repurposed Arthur Saddam genocide cover. In the earlier tabloid edition of Insider, the Aliens Countdown story had run as a strip. Serialized at two pages per issue in the new volume was the original comic strip Aliens vs. Predator 2 by Stradley and Warner. We'll catch up with that eventually. The second issue of Insider offered an extended preview of Cyber Antics by Stanislaw Mayakovsky and Rick Geary, plus a virgin reproduction of Kelly Jones's Hive number one on the back cover. Hive had of course launched that February with Cyberantics following in March. The February sales breakdown sees Aliens Hive number one as the top 20 title per diamond as reported to Wizard Magazine number eight. Behind Marvel Comics presents number 99, but ahead of Silver Surfer number 64 and the Justice League Spectacular. Through Capital City Distribution, Hive number one was two slots lower at number 22, selling 41,350 copies. It was the second best selling indie after Youngblood number one, which ranked sixth overall on both 
both distributors' charts. However, Youngblood number one was the top comic overall in dollar share, which goes to show the difference a price point can make if you move enough units. Since the Aliens and Predator comics cost sometimes twice as much as the Marvel and DC books, but maybe sold a few more units, they were considerably more profitable than, say, a month's issue of Incredible Hulk or New Warriors, and coming from a much smaller operation with a likely lower cost from not having to pay Del Keown or Mark Bagley, for instance. Alien Genocide number three was 27th overall per diamond, 29th per capital city, which reported 37,025 copies sold. That's such a marginal difference between a third issue and high number one, that at least at this point, there was a de facto monthly Aliens comic with stable sales in the realm of 80 to 100,000 copies, regardless of creative team. Bloody Sands was 31st and 33rd between distributors and fourth best-selling indie. In a rarity, that means it outsold Star Wars Dark Empire number two in 38th or 39th place, as well as Terminator in 44th, 45th, Next Men number zero, and Young Indiana Jones Chronicles number one in 66th and 72nd, respectively. If you haven't caught on, we're establishing a clear pecking order among the Dark Horse licensed titles with, ultimately, Star Wars way at the top, followed by Aliens and Predator books fairly close together, trailed considerably by the Terminator, and with Indiana Jones a comparative afterthought. Dark Horse had seven of the top ten independent comics, with Voyager publications rounding out the top ten. Dark Horse was the number three publisher with 7.39% of the market share, but those other three slots in the top ten bowed ill. Malibu held 3.64% of the market, much late on the strength of one comic book. So what happens if you get five or six more young bloods? Voyager had 2.07% of the market, or as you may better remember them, Valiant Comics, topped by Magnus Robot Fighter number 12 and Shadow Man number one. Moving on to March, Youngblood dropped to 18th or 19th in unit sales, still easily besting Aliens Hive number two in 34th or 35th, placing it below a random pre-Nightfall Batman comic and above Darkhawk number 15 and Next Men number two. Interestingly, between the Diamond and Capital City sales, Terminator Hunters and Killers number one was either immediately above or below Hive, but we're only talking a few hundred copy difference, with Hive number two selling 36,800 copies through Capital City. The rest of the top 10 non-DC Marvel titles were Next Men, Frank Miller and Jeff Darrow's Hardboiled number three, Innovation's adaptation of the then new Dark Shadows revival, Thing from Another World, and Young Indiana Jones, number twos. And finally, the 10th issues of Magnus Robot Fighter and Solar Man of the Atom. Dark Horse's market share dropped to 5.98%. April offered the Squarebound reprint special and podcast namesake Dark Horse Presents Aliens, and with May came the Newt's Tale Prestige Micro Series. I should perhaps mention that Micro Series is a little used term for a two-part miniseries, I believe coined by Mirage Studios for several of their Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle spinoffs. Dark Horse Insider number five offered a virgin rendition of John Bolton's Newt's Tale on the back cover. I should perhaps mention that a virgin cover lacks the logo, pricing, UPC codes, and other related trade dress, usually cluttering a cover. Youngblood was back in the top 10 for issue number three, but given the production delays on the book, I'm not sure about those numbers bearing on the actual reality. I can't tell you whether the distributors even filled these orders, or if the issues were resolicited later and advanced reorders would skew all that further. Valiant took a bite with the sixth ranked debut of Archer and Armstrong, plus new issues of Exo Man of War and Magnus. Now comics, from whom Dark Horse had taken the Terminator license, even had a strong showing of eighth place with the collector's edition of Sting of the Green Hornet number one. Besides the usual suspects, Dark Horse Presents Aliens came in at eighth place and 86th overall for Capital City with 17,425 units sold. The following month, Dark Horse managed to crack the top 10 in overall sales with Robocop versus Terminator number one. Not bad given that neither had the cultural sway or sales cloud of Aliens vs. Predator. Regardless, Spawn number one was still the top comic of the month in every category. John Burns next man number three in indie comics, but barely within the top 50 overall. The final issue of Aliens Hive was Diamond's 52nd title, but Capital City's 47th, selling a few hundred more copies than the penultimate issue. Valiant now had four titles in the top 10, powered by the Unity crossover and the debut of E2 
Eternal Warrior. Newt's Tale number one and the Terminator managed seventh and eighth place among indies and top 60 showings overall. Newt's Tale averaged about 30,000 copies each through Capital City across both issues and Dark Horse's market share remained stable. I've been throwing a lot of numbers at you and I'm starting to feel like an auctioneer. So why don't we take a brief break from the sales charts and take advantage of a chat that Aliens vs. Predator Galaxy podcast slash vlog had with the writer Ian Edgington. Could you just tell our audience a little bit about Ian? Who are you and what do you do? I'm a writer primarily of comic books. I'm a dad to two children and I have far, far too many books. I primarily work for 2000 AD, home to Judge Dredd, things like that. And I've, I have a number of series there. There's been Red Seas, which is like a fancy pirate thing. There's been Stickleback, which is kind of like a steampunk thing. Uh, Matt Brooker, the, Israeli, the artist Israeli and I, we did a series called Scarlet Traces, which was sequels to War of the Worlds. So that, but I've worked for Marvel, DC, Dark Horse. Um, I've done stuff for Iron Maiden, done one for Kiss, which has been quite fun. I've done a lot of Warhammer and Games Workshops, you know, some 40K, and I've worked on a lot of licensed stuff. I've, you know, I've done like Planet of the Apes and Star Trek, Star Wars, you know, Xena, Warrior Prince. I'm used to the kind of the strictures that come with working on licensed things. You, know, and you can't particularly have an ego because you're playing with somebody else's toys and property. Once you accept that, I mean, it's great. You know, it's like with, with Aliens and Predators, it's just like, you know, come and do us a series. It's like, yeah, cool. Jobbing writer, basically. I've done some big Finnish audio for Doctor Who, some Torchwood. It's, you can never offend me by throwing money at me. I've been very lucky in that it's kind of, it's been stuff that's appealed. I think I'm effectively unemployable in any other job now. I, I could maybe stack shelves, but, uh, you know, I'm not sure my, my, my back and my knees are up to it. I went to see Alien when it first opened in Birmingham on its, on its first run, and it was at the Gaumont, which was then the second biggest screen in Europe. It was like a massive like wraparound cinema screen. And I was underage. And there was actually a queue outside and around the block. And it was sort of watching it on the first run. So we sneaked in. That was good. It, it was scary. It wasn't, wasn't the scariest thought. It was, good, but it was just the atmosphere, big on atmosphere. Can't remember when I went to see Predator. But yeah, I, I went to see Predator on the first one. But I definitely remember going to see Alien. It was like it was that it was that Friday it opened or whatever and there was a queue around the block. But that was good fun. We were all kind of like, oh because it was said all in the newspapers like, oh people were so scared and they were like throwing up and oh and we're like Oh, wow, what's it going to be like? I went to Aliens as well on the first run, and that was just awesome. Actually, me and my friend Sean, we actually went back up to the box office and paid again and went and sat down, and we saw it the second time. Yeah, straight back again, because it's like, <laughs> what did we miss? Because we were just going, that's really cool. So, yeah, so we watched, <laughs> watched it twice in the same afternoon. Big fan. Which would you say is the favourite? Oh, it's it's apples and pears. Big soft spot for Alien just because it's monster in the haunted house kind of thing, big on atmosphere, and it, it, it was it set everything up, and it kind of pretty much was groundbreaking. Big on the atmosphere for, for Alien and then Aliens is just like it's just loud and in your face and it's just great I think Alien maybe just hedges it because it, it was groundbreaking but big big soft spot for Aliens because it's just such a really good, good snorting movie uh, I don't think you can have like a space movie that's got troopers in now that doesn't touch on colonial marines mm -hmm. you know it, it's there it's like you know it's like Blade Runner Blade Runner has its fingers in every kind of you know futuristic tech noir kind of movie now it, it's you know it's, it's, it's there so I think that's the same with, uh, with, with Aliens and of course with Alien it's like the, the slide into all you know how it, how it colours the medium so Predator's just big loud and stupid I have to <laughs> it's like you're not looking for any subtlety in Predator and it's just you know, for ages I kept on quoting uh, Jesse Ventura you know it's a you, you die you know bite here in a world of hurt kind of, you know those just like it's just so full of memorable lines I actually like Predator 2 as well I think it's, oh, it's yeah. very much of an 80s movie kind of ticks all those 80s boxes I, I, I like that because it extended the mythos you know the, you saw the, the 
Andalini pistol and mm-hmm. uh, and it, it kind of hinted at a wider universe. And it's like, ooh, okay, that's that's I like that. Let, what's what's going on? I want to know more about that now, please. As a, as a fan, I, I picked up the um, Mark Viden series, the first one in black and white, and then the, the Dave Bravé one afterwards. And, and the, the, I picked those series up and the, the Predator thing. So it's because it was still kind of like a very like a novel thing back then. You know, it's not like it is now where there's so much license. So yeah, so I, I kind of like been picking them up from the from the get go. Read the Alan Lee Foster novels. Of course, it's really weird to think, you know, back then, no internet as such. So you, you would pick up anything that kind of related to the, the thing that you wanted. You know, if you wanted more aliens, you wanted more product, you had to buy the comics or buy the novels or whatever. So, uh, yeah, so I, I picked up the comic series. And, of course, the, the, the Denny Bovee one, I loved that. That was, a, that was my fast favourite, I think. It, was, it just looked so cool. looked so great. The artwork was amazing. In, essence, in some respects, it kind of spoiled me because some of the other series afterwards, it's, you know, it's Kelly Jones, who's great on his own, you know. But you just go, oh, I want it more like this. But... <laughs> In the June 1992 Top 50, Diamond's reporting to Wizard number 12 had Robocop vs. Terminator number 2 at 28, Star Wars at 42nd, Alien 3 number 1 at 45th, and Next Minute 50th. Newt's Tale managed 86th, and Robocop 3 number 1 96th. Capital City sold 54,550 copies of Alien 3 number 1, but plummeted to about 34k for issues 2 through 3. Dark Horse's only Top 50 title for July was Robocop vs. Terminator number 3, with Next Men 53rd and the Alien 3 issues in 64th and 64th. The next month, Robocop vs. Terminator number 4 came 29th, Dark Empire 35th, Dark Horse Comics number 1 49th, Grindel War Child number 1 57th, and Classic Star Wars number 1 84th. The Alien 3 adaptation began in June and continued into July. August saw the launch of the Dark Horse Comics color anthology with a Predator feature and the first chapter of Renegade. Rite of Passage, credited to Ian Edgington, Rick Leonardi, Dan Panosian, and colorist Greg Wright, is an entirely silent two-parter in which a young Maasai warrior in Eastern Africa goes out to hunt for a tiger. When it comes back, it turns out his entire village has been wiped out by a predator. He eventually stalks the predator. They get into a fight. He's scarred, but ultimately manages to overcome the predator. He's found by another predator who basically acknowledges his accomplishment and flies off. And then many years later, we see the same warrior carrying a shield that contains skeletal bones from the face of the first predator, seeing the uh, lights of a starship in the night sky, preparing to again confront the predators. I've done a Terminator series for Dark Horse. I think prior to that, way back in time, I'd, I'd done a couple of series series for, uh, strips for Deadline, which was a magazine over here, a pop culture magazine that was home to Tank Girl by Jamie Hewlett, Steve Pugh, comic artist extraordinaire these days. And I did, did a couple of strips. They got picked up by Dark Horse Presents, and they said, "Do you want to come and do something else?" I went, "Yeah, fine." They went, "Do you want to do a Terminator series?" He was like, "Oh, okay." And so it was the second series mini series that they'd done. I was following on from the first one. I did that, and I said, yeah, "And I went, anything else?" And they said, "Well, you know, how do you feel about like your aliens or predators?" Ooh, okay, and then, and then I think they said we've got a spot in the um, new anthology that was coming up. There was that short story that was just the right fit for that. It was Rick Leonardi, I think, on the artwork. Just a super, superlative job. And, and that's kind of how, it, how I started doing the, the AVP kind of stuff. I wanted to make it timeless that it could have been the 1920s or it could have been way back. It was just literally, you know, boiled down to like a young man and he's right of passage and he actually comes up against the, you know, the, the predator and how the story falls. And I thought, I don't want to kind of like date it with anything and any kind of references. And, and I just thought, let's just keep it just pared down and almost like a, a cave painting story. Initially, the editor said, why are we painting your page rate? We have not written any dialogue. And I said, well, I, I can. And I, I, I did 
put some like thought balloons and things, but I, I didn't want to purple prose it. I didn't want to over embellish it. I just wanted to keep it stripped down and you can see what's going on and you put your own interpretation kind of on it. It's not abstract. And I think th- th- there was one with, with uh, thought but thought captions and stuff on it. But in the end, they, they went with it being pared down. They went, no, 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 you're actually right. It works better like this. And I mean, it was early days as well. So to actually kind of go to the ed- an editor, actually, I think it's better you know, like this. You know, where normally you go, yeah, okay, I'll do whatever you want. You know, I'm, I'm the young kid on the block kind of thing. I'm not <laughs> going to say no. And yeah, and, it, and I think on the strength of that, they kind of went, we were more open to let me do other like AVP stuff then. But kind of going, okay, yeah, you know, he's proved his chops kind of thing. Because of my reliance on Mike's Amazing World of Comics, I thought the Tribes Howard cover was released in May, but it was actually due out on August the 11th per Insider number eight. The Predator Big Game trade paperback also shipped. Whenever Tribes was solicited, it was the fifth ranked comic in dollar share and the ninth highest grossing graphic novel edition of 1991. Only the first issue of the Final Terminator miniseries, Endgame, cracked the September 1992 top 50 at number 41. Dark Horse only had three other titles in the top 100, Next Men number 7, Dark Horse Comics number 2 at 90, and Grindel Warchild number 2. This was also around the time Dark Horse went Dr. Giggles crazy, as the already produced movie had their brand slapped onto it after the fact to help them get entry into Hollywood. Dr. Giggles barely cleared $8 million at the box office, but it was important to the schmoozing of the company, so they were suddenly doing multi-page features on the production. They also used Doug Monkey Giggles art for the cover of Insider number 10, even though the more obvious choice was Dave Dorman's painting for Predator vs. Magnus Robot Fighter number 1, rendered virgin on the back. The solicitation for the micro-series reads, Predator stalks North Am 4001, searching for his most prized trophy, the Exo Manowar helmet. The stolen trophy has fallen into the hands of a certain gof, a man called Magnus, whose steel-mashing strength has earned him the title Robot Fighter. Thus, the stage is set for the Battle of the 41st Century. The first Dark Horse Valiant crossover is written by Jim Shooter, with art by Lee Weeks, colors by Janet Jackson, and cover by Barry Windsor Smith. $2.95 US, $3.50 Canada, 32 full-color pages, saddle stitch, deluxe format, painted cover, shipping October 20th, 1992. Announced for November 17th, 1992 shipping, Valiant and Dark Horse combine their resources to produce the spectacular conclusion to the year's most exciting face-off. Predator faces Robot Fighter, and only one will walk away. Don't miss this historic matchup. Written by John Ostrander, with art by Lee Weeks, and covered by Barry Windsor Smith. Reader's note, free trading cards inside. Two collectible trading cards with all new Predator vs. Magnus Robot Fighter art by Lee Weeks in this issue. If you can believe it, I managed to go this long without reading Predator vs. Magnus, even though I'm pretty sure my brother bought it as a part of his early Robot Fighter collecting. It's a pretty straightforward story, set 2,000 years in the future. All but one member of a Predator hunting party is killed by human forces, who manage to grab the Exo Helm from the Predator's trophy room before it triggers the ship's self-destruct. The helmet ends up among a group of world's deadliest game-style aristocratic urban hunters who stalk illegal free-willed robots instead of fellow humans. Well, mostly. At this stage, Magnus had quit formal society to live in the ghetto and defend the existence of these sentient robots with fists that can rend steel. On the side, Magnus ended up with the Exo Helm, which he takes to his politician girlfriend Leisha's apartment. They Exo and chill, with Leisha's empathy allowing her to detect an intelligence residing within the helm. Later, Leisha is attacked by the Predator and they're followed by the well-heeled human hunters. Magnus intervenes, but the Predator initially gets the better of him. However, the trigger-happy hunters call attention to themselves and get to join Lim Lee in the hell of being cut to pieces. Only the main bad guy escapes, but not for long, as Magnus introduces his notorious karate chop to the Predator's spinal column. Magnus refuses to take life, but absent better options, he went Shadowhawk on the Outcha. Once again, a Predator hunting party shows up to give Magnus the Exo ring in acknowledgement of his triumph, but he disgustedly tosses it into the gutter. A simple story, but reasonably well told. The draws here are the action-packed clash of properties and the art of Lee Weeks. 
Given my distaste for the Kubert brothers, you might find it odd that I like the visually similar weeks. See, the Kuberts to me always seem like when Herb Trempe started trying to draw like Rob Liefeld, but in their case, it's as if their dad Joe had taken to swiping from Jim Lee. Given the annoying rise of the positively Liefeldian Twitter accounts ongoing parody of Watchmen, I'm reminded that Rob gets too much shit for his drawing quirks, and Jim Lee gets too little for his barrel-chested posed action figure anatomy, which only gets worse when the Kuberts ape his COPD suffering protagonists. I just really hate the bastardization of the Kubert style on a mismatched pastiche. Lee Weeks was also a bit of a scab on X-Books after the image exodus, but far less of a fit on that material. Weeks clearly absorbed a bunch of classic Marvel Bronze Age artists in the same way Mark Bagley had, but in place of Remita Sr., Weeks was more strongly influenced by Bushima and Gene Colan. Most jarringly, but effectively, he was clearly influenced either directly by or shared exposures with Mike Mignola, with his bold figures, minimalist backgrounds, and heavy blacks. In both style and substance, I just find Lee Weeks entirely more palatable than the Kuberts, though he's not the first guy you'd think of for old Magnus's shiny chrome future. However, Weeks also shows elements of Paul Smith and Steve Rude in his work, effectively evoking Russ Manning and offering a bit of beauty to his 70s New York dystopia. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Knock, knock. Versus The Predator. Predator, rated R. The Battle of the Century starts Friday, June 12th. Also offered was a Predator 2 vinyl figure kit sculpted by Randy Bowen with box art by Dave Dorman, $39.95 US. Dark Horse Presents number 67 announced beginning in this double-sized annual issue, part one of a three-part lead-in to the upcoming miniseries Predator Race War. Story by novelist Andrew Vox, adapted by Randy Stradley and artists Jordan Raskin and John Beatty. Finally, the Aliens Horror Show serial was begun in Dark Horse Comics number three, solicited as shipping on October 27th, 1992. In October, the Valiant co-production Predator vs. Magnus No. 1 hit 12th place, Star Wars 35th, Terminator 55th, Next Men 58th, Robocop Prime Suspect No. 1 at 72nd, and Grindel at 85th. For November, Predator vs. Magnus No. 2 slipped to 24th, Dark Horse's only top 50 book, with only Next Men and Grindel in the top 100. Valiant had 8 titles in the top 100, and Image Comics 9. Meanwhile, Dark Horse Presents No. 68 continued the Race War prequel. Dark Horse Comics No. 4 began the Predator's Hunting Grounds moved to Japan in Blood Feud by Neil Barrett Jr., Hard Looks, and Leo Duranonia, Race of Scorpions. Plus, Salient's Horror Show continues, read by Sarah Byam, Billy99, and art by David Roach, 2000 AD. Xenopedia describes the plot of Blood Feud as an age-old Yaucha returns to modern Japan to hunt a blind martial arts instructor, the descendant of an adversary it faced in feudal Japan centuries earlier. One habit I'm starting to see of these stories is the one great human warrior who manages to conquer and kill the Predator not even a matter of survival, but actually conquers the Predator. And every time this happens, it diminishes the prestige of the Predator as this great hunter because all these random humans keep killing them. So really, it seems like you just need one decent badass, somebody who wouldn't even necessarily be able to carry their own action movie, just has to show up. And as long as they kill the Predator, they're the hero. I don't believe that most of these motherfuckers could do shit against a goddamn alien. So I, I just cannot stand how they build up the Predators as something that can kill the shit out of Xenomorphs. Again, the whole thing about Xenomorphs is there's a bunch of them. So even if you manage to kill one, there's three other ones coming up behind it. That's why ultimately you have to bug out to survive an encounter with these guys. Where are these predators? They have their fucking honor system and shit. They've got superior weaponry. They've got all this physical mass. They've got all this stuff that gives them so many advantages against humans. And there's always some random human that turns out being able to kick their fucking asses. So give me a fucking break with the predator bullshit. They ain't that fucking badass. I'm sure they chopped me to tiny little pieces, but I'm not a fucking action hero. And anyway, one of the reasons why I bring that up is because I'm not into the 
story and art from tossing through it at all. And it's just like getting tired of looking at these Predator stories that look like they're 1970s foreign imports. By December, Dark Horse had abandoned the top 50. Next Men, Grendel, and Classic Star Wars were in the top 100. December saw the launch of the miniseries Virus, a four-parter that would eventually be adapted into a motion picture starring Jamie Lee Curtis. We had the Aliens vs. Predator hardcover collection. $75 US, $90 Canadian. Shipping December the 1st. And there were new titles from Dark Horse International, the newly formed British subsidiary of the old Dark Horse Comics, launches the first of its regular monthly titles, featuring the best of Dark Horse US's licensed comics, together with new features and artwork exclusive to the British edition. Aliens Volume 2 Number 1, UK edition, has a stunning John Bolton cover, together with the first episodes of Aliens Hive and Predator Cold War. And if that wasn't enough, there are eight pages of all new features, lavishly illustrated, which haven't been seen in any other publication. Learn of the torturous path by which Alien 3 finally made it to the screen, plus info on the British Aliens fan club. Two regular features make their debut with this issue, The Motion Tracker, a survey of the latest alien news from around the world, and technical readout, an in-depth guide to the hardware used in the Aliens movies. To top it all, there's a special free eight-page comic inside the first issue, featuring a Martha Washington story by Frank Miller and Dave Gibbons, 295 US, 350 Canada, 48 color pages, magazine format, color cover, shipping December 1st, 1992. Also, Alien 3 movie special number one, UK edition. Dark Horse International's UK edition of Alien 3 provides a whole bunch of extra features, on top of Dark Horse's own official comic book adaptation of the movie. The comic features scenes never seen in the original movie, courtesy of writer Stephen Grant, penciler Christopher Taylor, and inker Rick Magyar. This story has already seen publication in the US, but there are plenty of original and exclusive features never seen anywhere else. These include an in-depth look at the making of Alien 3, complete with behind-the-scenes photos, an overview of the Alien 3 model kits, plus 20 things you never knew about the movie, and an interview with special effects supremo Stephen Norrington. That name seems oddly familiar. This issue also has a special free gift, a pull-out centerfold poster featuring a shot from the movie. Note, limited to a print run of 10,000 copies, monthly, shipping December 7th, 1992. After falling down this deep research hole of sales data, I think I owe an apology to Aliens Predator, Deadliest of the Species. As I've looked closer at the top 100 sales charts in, God forgive me, Wizard Magazine, I found it to be the rare Dark Horse title consistently represented after they fell from third place publisher. After Image Comics and the Marvel publishing glut, it became increasingly rare to see a single Dark Horse title in the top 50, and most months only offer two to five of their comics in the top 100. So if issues from the second half of the Maxi series were still charting, then it was undoubtedly among Dark Horse's all-time best-selling non-Star Wars series. Still a fraction of what something like Wildstar sold, but relative to Dark Horse, unquestionably a win. I also wanted to get listeners grounded in 1992 because the publication schedule that I've used to guide the show up until now goes to absolute shit in 1993. The primary suspect is the Maxi series Aliens Colonial Marines, previously announced to have been the subject of this episode. As you'll recall, Deadliest of the Species was also announced as a 12-issue Maxi series, but at a bi-monthly schedule lasting two years. I decided to cover it around the point in the publication history when the Renegade 2 parter ran in Dark Horse Comics. The assumption being that Chris Claremont probably based his take on the material in the movies and very loosely from the comics published at that point. As much as I slagged on Deadliest of the Species for clearly not being tightly plotted for much of its run, it's sort of the AVP equivalent of Zany Haney. The story seems to take place on Earth Q, with no real impact on or reference to any of the other material Dark Horse publishing. Colonial Marines was also planning impaired, though it had the excuse of burning through multiple writers not working as a team. However, it does involve continuity from other Dark Horse miniseries pretty significantly, so I can't dive into that maxi series without covering other stories. Another serial, Aliens Earth Angel, began the January 1993 edition of the preview solicitation catalog and runs throughout that year. The material won't be collected until next year though, and I have a guest book for that one, and I didn't want to spring a last minute recording session upon 
upon. Also in January was Predator in Dark Horse Comics and the second issue of the Aliens UK magazine with, quote, a stunning new cover by British artist Paul Johnson, interface, books of magic, worth the cover price alone. Alien 3 movie special number 2 UK edition included as a major interview with Sigourney Weaver that looks back at her role in all three Alien films, plus an overview of Alien 3 merchandise, what the cast and critics have said about the movie, and an exclusive technical report on the emergency escape vehicle as seen in the early scenes of the film. A second free pullout poster rounds off this issue, an essential item for Alien completists. Shipping January 5th, 1993. Also of note in this section, Star Wars number 1 UK edition. The latest title from Dark Horse's British stable brings together two of the top characters from Luke film. Star Wars Dark Empire is the highly acclaimed official continuation to the most popular science fiction series of all time, written by Tom Veach with stunning full-color artwork by Cam Kennedy. Each issue will also feature an Indiana Jones adventure, this time we find Indy on the trail of the fate of Atlantis, by William Messner Loeb's, Dan Barry, and Carl Kiesel. In addition to the comic book stories, each issue contains features and competitions. Two free gifts in this issue will appeal to all Star Wars fans. The first two cards and a set of exclusive Star Wars trading cards, plus a special album to enable you to collect the whole set. To 295 US, 370 Canada, 48 color pages, magazine format, color cover, monthly, shipping January 12th, 1993. February 1993 was a big Aliens vs. Predator month. Specifically, the Aliens vs. Predator 2 serial ended in Dark Horse Insider number 14 and was already being reprinted in two-page installments with the third edition of the UK magazine. Under another Paul Johnson cover, there's also a whole bunch of feature material too, which US readers haven't had a chance to see before. This includes a report on Alien War, the new Alien theme ride in Glasgow, Scotland, technical readouts on motion trackers and synthetics, and news about the various rumors flying around about Alien 4, shipping February 2nd, 1993. As for Alien 3 Movie Special Number 3 UK Edition, the heart-stopping inclusion of the most controversial Alien movie of all, courtesy of Stephen Grant, Chris Taylor, and Rick Magyar, Ripley has to face the ultimate decision to save her own life or imperil the future of the universe. Additional features in the British edition include a look at the storyboards produced by comic artist Martin Asbury, the latest chapter of Aliens vs. Predator 2, and a stunning free pull-out poster, a must for all Aliens completists. Also shipping February 2nd, 1993. In Dark Horse Comics number 7 were the concluding chapters of our most recent Predator and Mad Dog stories. Aliens Colonial Marines number 2 was scheduled to ship on February the 2nd, the Hive softcover collection on February the 9th, and the Tribe softcover on February the 23rd. Insider also did a deep disservice to Aliens Rogue with a sneak preview featuring extremely loose, extremely light pencils that barely print for most of each page and just absolutely do a disservice to the incredible artwork by Will Simpson, which we're going to talk about before long. Predator Race War launched on February 2nd, 1993. One of four. The Predator hunts the most dangerous game, man. Now the Predator moves to the most dangerous hunting ground on the planet, the Palo Verde State Penitentiary in Arizona. Tension is high in the prison as a convicted serial killer arrives, followed by a Predator bent on killing him and the man chasing both of them, Cross. Predator Race War number one picks up the action after the three-issue prologue in Dark Horse Presents. Written by Andrew Vox, Hard Looks, and Randy Stradley, Aliens vs. Predator. Penciled by Jordan Raskin, inked by Rick Bryant, painted cover by Dave Dorman. Advisory, suggested for mature readers. 250 US, 315 Canada. 32 color pages, painted cover. March 1993 was considerably larger, only offering Aliens Colonial Marines number 3 on the US front. In the UK, you had the fourth issue of the Aliens magazine. The motion tracker included Straight from the Horse's Mouth about plans for an Aliens vs. Predator movie. Shooting Dave about Sigourney Weaver's new film Dave, Hiving License about Steve Perry's new Aliens novel Earth Hive, The Winter of Disc Intent about the Laserdisc release of Alien, Sly Fox debunking 20th Century Fox's claim that the Alien Special Edition would eventually be withdrawn from sale, technical readout on the Remote Century Weapons, the article Science Fiction A Cut Above
Love by Dave Hughes, and a reprint of the Aliens New Tale painted cover by John Bolton. Issue number five also came out that month. This time, the motion tracker offered Alien Survives Lethal Weapon, about Alien 3 finally dismounting Lethal Weapon 3 from the top of the UK box office. Life's Abyss, about the upcoming extended special edition of The Abyss. The Return of the Return of the Living Dead, on the home video release of the Dan O'Bannon pinned The Return of the Living Dead. I assume it's something to do with video nasties keeping that off the shelves. And Exhibit A, about an Aliens exhibition at Tower Records in London. The technical readout was on the Armored Personnel Carrier. And the painted cover was by Chris Halls. Aliens Rogue was cover featured on Dark Horse Insider, Volume 2, Number 16. Solicitation copy reads, Aliens Rogue Number 1. The mysterious Mr. Cray is a corporate spy extraordinaire, but even he's never faced a mission this dangerous. Cray has been sent to Charon Base to check out research director Ernst Kleist's genetic experiments on aliens. Kleist is trying to breed the beasties into something useful, something that humans can control. The workers on Charon are starting to disappear one by one, and Kleist definitely knows more about it than he's letting on. Cray and his pilot, Palmer, may be the only ones who can unravel Kleist's schemes. That is, if they make it past his pet aliens. Written by Ian Edgington, the Terminator of the Enemy Within. Illustrated by Will Simpson, Hellblazer. Painted cover by Will Simpson. $2.50 US, $3.15 Canada. 32 color pages, painted cover, monthly. Shipping April 27th, 1993. From listening to interviews on podcasts like The Comics Alternative and AVP Galaxy, it sounds like writer Ian Edgington drew up hard scrabble with alcoholism in the household. Breaking into the British comics industry in 1990 on magazines like Revolver and Deadline, Edgington often worked with illustrator Disraeli. Within a year, Edgington had been invited to contribute to Dark Horse Presents, along with his made an eventual best man, Steve Pugh. Soon after, Edgington transitioned to Dark Horse's licensed properties like The Terminator, The Enemy Within. This was followed by his Predator story in Dark Horse Comics number one through two, and then the Aliens Rogue miniseries. It's a very like, fertile medium to play in. I like to write intelligent adventure action kind of stuff. I'm not an overly cerebral writer. I just like to have fun. You know, I like to primarily be entertained. I just go, you know, would this make me go, I want to read this, I want to watch that. It's like, wow, okay. I just want people to be entertained at the end of the day. You know, had a good ride, you know, a few shocks, a few laughs, gone, wow, you know, a couple of like, wow, that's cool moments. And, you know, then my work here is done, kind of thing. I got into DC Vertigo's Hellblazer series during the run of artist Steve Dillon, drawn there after enjoying writer Garth Ennis' work on The Demon. I went on to collect Ennis and Dillon's entire shared run, carrying over into Preacher. It even gave their stint on Marvel's The Punisher a try. However, it bears mentioning that writer Garth Ennis' run on Hellblazer began a good ways before his mate Dillon came aboard. His initial artist was Will Simpson, and while I tried a few of their issues together, I never felt motivated to go back further into their shared working period. They even put out a trade paperback of their most significant significant story, dangerous habits, and I can't say for certain if I ever bothered with it. The truth was that I disliked Simpson's loose, spare, scratchy artwork, and felt like it took Enos a bit to get going, so I simply abstained. I really crossed paths with Simpson after that, and in fact must confess that I often confused the Englishman with the African-American artist Howard Simpson, who worked on Secret Origins and Young All-Stars. It's a shame, because William Simpson drew several series of Vertigo's Vamps with writer Elaine Lee, and his work there was so beautifully tight and intricate that I sometimes confused him with the cover artist Brian Bolland. I didn't have that problem with the less successful Vamps Hollywood in Vain cover artist Phil Winslade, who I am a fan of, but that first miniseries was truly exceptional both inside and out. Aliens Rogue perhaps marks the point where William Simpson went from the guy dismissed on Hellblazer to the fellow that left me gobsmacked on Vamps. I opened up Rogue number one planning its coverage to be a last minute filler switch in place of Colonial Marines, but within a couple or three pages stopped dead. I felt obligated to reach out to some 
some of the show's past guests to make sure that I was allowed to cover Rogue without them. The artwork here is easily among the best that I've seen since beginning to discuss the comics on this podcast. I still can't believe people weren't fighting each other for the chance to cover this miniseries with me. Sandy Schofield, actually a pseudonym for married authors Dean Wesley Smith and Christina Catherine Rush, adapted the miniseries into a 1995 novelization with a new John Bolton cover. The jacket elaborates further. Escape from Sharon or die in the grip of the ultimate weapon. Welcome to the former penal colony of Sharon, where a labyrinth of underground tunnels offers shelter to an alien hive. Professor Ernst Kleist rules, a paranoid tyrant who sees and hears all. His specialty is making humans disappear. Captain Joyce Palmer, instantly recognizable in her yellow Harley Davidson cap, is bound for Sharon. Only she and a few hand-picked marines can stop Kleist in his tracks. Only they can stop the professor's most insane creation, the Rogue. The story begins with the evil scientist, Professor Ernst Kleist, watching a group of off-model cloning marines enter a hive via a bank of television monitors. It is later explained that these marines are not here in an official capacity, but are instead on loan to the ZCT Corporation to take part in the ultra-secret Project Chimera. The marines have been outfitted to look more like something from a Masamune Shiro manga or European sci-fi than Jim Cameron, and armed with experimental weapons like the Sound Cannon and Taser Web Rifle. Reminiscent of Dr. Logan and George A. Romero's Day of the Dead, a stock of alien drones and a queen have been maintained for scientific study, and the doctor is quite cavalier about the lives of the military grunts tasked with wrangling his subjects. When a marine is killed during the task, one of his comrades avenges him with a pulse rifle, earning Kleist's ire. Most of their equipment is non-lethal, and Kleist values his stock more than the marines, especially when the offending soldier adds insult to injury by openly criticizing Kleist. Critics have a nasty habit of disappearing on Charon, and sure enough, Kleist's inner circle of bully boys soon kidnap the soldier and feed him to the hive. Meanwhile, the black female commercial pilot Joyce Palmer and her horny idiot co-pilot Deegan deliver Mr. Cray to Charon. Kleist has been warned that the corporation's communications have been compromised by industrial espionage, so Cray has been sent to gather and ferry physical media related to the project's progress back to corporate. Cray is a pretty boy, alternating between blonde or gray hair depending on which edition you're looking at, and wearing John Lennon glasses, or ranks or rocks, however you want to come at it. He's a defector from the Grant Corporation featured in the Genocide miniseries, and the only man ZCT trusts with this job. In fact, when Kleist gives Cray a tour of Chimera, he points out all the areas where developments Cray stole from the Grant Corporation have been integrated into his research, like a gel that neutralizes the acidity of Xenomorph blood. The issue ends with Kleist explaining that he's managed to harvest genetically altered drones, burst from the chests of clones, and demonstrates these domesticated drones passively following his commands like dogs. Kind of a, a mix of Dr. Pretorius from Bride of Frankenstein, which is the Ernest Thessinger character. I mean, that's the you know, old, old 30s universal thing. And also the original Dr. Moreau, the guy who played back in, uh, Charles Lawton Charles Lawton who played the original Dr. Moreau who's this quite amoral uh, he, you know, character who thought nothing of the, the cruelty inflicted on the creatures that he was turning into humans and, things. and, uh, and then there's a bit of Herbert West in there as well from Reanimator yeah, it, it was a, a bit of a mashup Aliens number one was April 1993's number 80 title per Diamond Distribution as reported by Wizard Magazine number 22 and Dark Horse's top seller of the month followed by Predator Race War number 0 and Colonial Marines number 4 shipping April 27th was Predator Race War number zero. The story begins here with a serial killer, a predator, and the man hired to find the truth. Cross.
Cross, presenting the three-part prologue from Dark Horse Presents number 67, 68, and 69 in color for the first time. Predator Race War number zero takes the reader to the heart of the action, and I, I do have to wonder if perhaps the reason why they ran the story in Dark Horse Presents rather than Dark Horse Comics is so they could reprint the material in a single comic book in color for the first time, where it would have been in color if they'd put it in Dark Horse Comics. Gives a little added value, I suppose. Oh, and I should point out that the prequel story was inked by Bob Vicek and John Beatty. I've enjoyed artist Jordan Raskin's art in the past, as he's basically Michael Bayer with a bit of Mark Beecham as inked by Kevin Nolan. However, he was still developing his style at this point, and he's not quite there, with a bit of roughness and attempted 90s-isms. I'd briefly considered reading this comic, given his pedigree and having been adapted by Aliens vs. Predators scripter. Besides the art not drawing me in as much as expected, there are also long tracts of caption boxes just smothering it. Perhaps the book should have expanded by a few issues to let it breathe, but with Raskin leaving halfway through the miniseries, his successor, Lachlan Pele, tipped the scales firmly in favor of passing altogether. Plus, I had a terrible work week, and all this sales data research ate up my weekend lead time, delaying production and release of this episode. The last thing I needed was an undercooked, overwritten additional subject. It's likely Raskin screwed Dark Horse over as well, since his last issue was released on March 16th. The Zero Reprint issue runs as a stopgap a little over a month later, and Pele's first issue is over two months after that, meaning that an entire season passed before new race war material was published. The next and final issue took nearly another two months. Dark Horse dropped the trade paperback one week plus one year later. I will say, though, that Raskin's cover to the Zero issue telegraphs the heights that he would soon reach, and the painted covers on the miniseries by Dave Dorman were striking. Getting Ray Lago for the trade's wraparound cover felt like a bit of a fumble by comparison, so it's no wonder the digital release reverted back to Dorman. Colonial Marines shipped on April 6th, by the way. As for Aliens UK Edition Volume 2 Number 6, this issue kicks off with a spectacularly moody cover by Judge Dread artist Pete Doherty. You want new features? This issue carries a gaggle of them, including Motion Tracker, which looks at Ridley Scott's director's cut of Blade Runner, and news on James Cameron's Spider-Man project. The big picture takes a widescreen view of Alien and technical readout tells you one-on-one -on -one things you can do with a used power loader. Curiously, also in the same issue, despite claiming to be monthly, one shipping April 6th, the other shipping April 20th, volume two, number seven. Cover artist Chris Halls turns in one of the most striking Aliens illustrations of the year as an alien queen gives birth to her hellish progeny in snow-swept wastes. Original feature material includes a review of the Alien 3 computer game and the regular news roundup in Motion Tracker. Copy for Aliens Rogue number two reads, things are getting curiouser and curiouser on Charon base. The more John Cray and Joyce Palmer find out about Dr. Kleist's research, the less they like it. Most of the Marines stationed there have been executed despite their commanding officer's protests and it looks like the few remaining grunts are headed for a nasty new kind of bug hunt. Meanwhile, since Kleist's attempts to breed a tame alien queen have all failed miserably, he's trying a new approach, one that involves using Cray's DNA with or without his consent. Aliens Rogue number two opens with Kleist's violently expressing frustration at his inability to successfully produce a genetically altered xenomorph queen to go with his domesticated drones. We also meet Kleist's synthetic personal assistant and bodyguard Grace, attired in a business unprofessional short skirt, indicating another area where Kleist lacks ethics. Deegan had teased Palmer about her seeming sexual interest in Cray, but it turns out that she had a lot more on her mind than that. No one seems to get out of Charon alive, so Palmer wants help from Cray in exposing Kleist and getting back to the young son she took this hazardous job to support. Unfortunately, Kleist's oppressive surveillance state clues him into the clandestine meeting, and the doctor had rightly surmised that Cray's story didn't hold up. He'd been fed to ZCT by the Grant Corporation, offering them gifts to serve as a Trojan horse to enter Project Chimera, but Kleist never bought the story about his compromised communication 
communications. Furthermore, the commanding officer of the Colonial Marines, Sergeant Reuben Green, is brutally beaten by Grace when he tries to confront Kleist about his missing men. As it happens, clones never quite did the job for producing adequate chestbursters, so Kleist had taken defeating expendable resources to facehuggers, like Colonial Marines. Sergeant Green, Palmer, and Cray are all arrested and shipped unarmed into the alien hive. I have to admit that those first few pages of art were exceptional, and things get looser as the story progresses, with some looking a bit wonky. Overall though, it's still very attractive, and the story is quite engaging. Aliens Rogue number 2 was May 1993's number 95 title, as reported in Wizard Magazine number 23, the second of two Dark Horse titles to barely crack the top 100. It was the last issue of the miniseries to chart. The other half of the series fell out of the top 100, but it's worth noting that it was probably pushed out by Dark Horse's own Comics Greatest World titles. Priced at a dollar each and showcasing a different property per title, Dark Horse released four weekly issues each month showcasing a shared setting, running for four months total. So Rogue number three was likely a casualty of the Arcadia books, and number four, the Golden City one. Only one Aliens magazine released in May. This one had a painted cover by Killian Plunkett, which was related to Newt's tale, showing the alien queen being blown out of the airlock from the Soloco at the end of Aliens. Motion Tracker covers Alien 3 for rent only, about a bonus, the making of Alien 3 video game given away exclusively with rental copies of Alien 3. Alien for sale or rent on a full-size alien suit available to rent from fiction and fantasy models. Have a House of Horror about Lance Hendrickson's first film role in Massacre Mansion. Soldier of Fortune on Roland Emmerich's latest film, Universal Soldier. And Remote Century, listing upcoming releases with cast, crew connections to Alien Predator franchises. Technical readout was the Jordan Tractor. There's an article, Aliens, A Dire Tribe by Dave Hughes. An interview with director Clive Barker. Article called Bishopsgate by Dave Hughes on Lance Hendrickson's career. By the way, some of these more elaborate synopses are coming from Xenopedia. Dark Horse Comics began the Predator serial, The Pride of Nahasa, a reprint edition of Alien Sacrifice. Another one we'll get to later on. New issues of Colonial Marines and Rogue. And finally, the Predator Cold War trade paperback collection. The Pride of Nasa is another one of these ones that looks like a, an old-timey foreign reprint, uh, but it's, it's a new story by Chuck Dixon, art by Enrique Kike Alcatena. It's set in 1936 Kenya. Basically, you got this group of big game hunters who instead find themselves hunted by a predator. The last survivor is running through the jungle trying to escape the predator, and the jungle itself is tearing the predator apart. Alligators and wolves and all kinds of shit basically set themselves upon the predator, chews his arm off, tears him up pretty bad, finally just hops from the ship and leaves the last hunter. The sound rocketed the earth and the blast turned the wallow to steam in an instant, and gone was the hunting star, gone to track game on some other unfortunate world, and God's great mercy to them. Blah, blah, blah. At least it was somewhat novel. So at this point, the comic's greatest world material starts taking over both the covers of Insider and the opening pages. The solicitation for Aliens Rogue number three reads, when a genetically engineered alien refrains from attacking an injured Kray, it seems that Kleist's attempts to breed a tame alien have finally paid off. Meanwhile, a SciTech elite patrol are deployed to hunt down Palmer, who helps rescue Kray by way of the armory. The race for survival is accelerated, as Kleist's latest creation proves to be both highly motivated and dangerously unpredictable. Monthly shipping June 29th, 1993. I confess that with most of the twists revealed in the second issue, the story loses a lot of its dramatic tension halfway through. I still enjoy it, but the plot shifts from intrigue to action, which can get a bit monotonous when it spans the entire second half. Having failed to secure a domesticated xenomorph queen, Kleist hit upon the idea of more radically altering their genes to produce a new type of alien, which he dubs a king. The design isn't too radical, essentially a hybrid of a drone and a queen, about the same size as the latter but with more spiky bits. We said like the queen 
looks like this. So we want to have the key, so, something, you know, a, a big, hefty creature, but something different shapes, you know, a different silhouette kind of thing. And we threw, I think we just threw some ideas around, you know, like spines and this and that and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, it was down to Will, but we just kind of like spitballed ideas. And then he went, you know, he went off and did his design. And, uh, and Dark Horse were really taken with it. So that was it. Once again, curiously reminiscent of Day of the Dead, the trio protagonists who defied Kleist are roaming around the caverns where the drones are kept, managing to evade most of the aliens and survive unarmed. Meanwhile, fairly inexplicably, Kleist has unleashed his alien king to kill random members of his inner circle and make his way to the hive for a showdown with the queen. Apparently the king can be tamed around the fathers behind his creation, like Kleist and Kray, but he's too aggressively territorial to tolerate a queen or her drones. In the chaos, Kray and Palmer are reunited with Deegan as he's shagging a townie, and they're soon joined by Sergeant Green and some pulse rifles. The solicitation for Aliens Rogue number 4 of 4 had a big explosive blurb noting the stunning wraparound cover, once again painted by Will Simpson. Copy reads, The alien queen was regarded as the most uniquely dangerous creature in the galaxy until Professor Kleist created something even more unique. In this final issue of Aliens Rogue, Kleist's genetically engineered alien king wrecks havoc upon Charon base, while Kray, Palmer, and the ever-resourceful Deegan attempt to escape from aliens and Psytech special forces. When the alien king locates the captive queen, not even the brilliant Kleist knows whether the queen will greet her mate or meet her match. Shipping July 27, 1993. In Rogue number 4, Sergeant Green kills any of Kleist's men that the alien king missed, taking special delight in tormenting those he held responsible for killing his marines. Ultimately, the alien king proves no match for a queen, prompting Kleist and Grace to jump in as though this was a wrestling title bout. The alien queen swiftly dismembers the synthetic, though Grace curiously bleeds red instead of white. I think that might have been a colouring movement. I don't remember anything quite distinct for that. I'll, I will have to go and double check, but I suspect a colouring movement. Kleist himself is figuratively and literally disarmed, separating him from an overcharged sound cannon which explodes. Presumably the Queen and everyone in their immediate area are wiped out in the blast. I've been reading some like film magazines and, think that, and that all the gossip of what was going to be next and so on, and that, that whatever the alien hatched from took on traits of the host subject. So, you know, like in Alien 3, there's the dog alien and that kind of thing. I thought, oh, that's quite interesting. So what if somebody actually did that purposefully with programming and stuff, so you could make them not necessarily more docile, but more trainable. You could get them to do, they could be applicable to certain tasks and work in certain environments. And so it, it's, it's an essentially, it's almost like a David Cronenberg kind of thing where you're, you're making an organic tool. I, I, I confess the King was meant to be, excuse me, sorry, like a big, like, what the fuck moment. So it's one of those things where people go, wow, well, okay, you know, and it's like, I'm going to be contrary. There's a queen, let's have a King. I don't know why, but it's a good idea. It's a really cool, but Kleist in the end kind of wanted the King always to be his controlling monarch. So, you know, the, the King would do the con controlling of the, his programmed aliens kind of thing. My memory's a bit spotty on this because it was a long time ago and I'm an old man. But yeah, so the, the, the idea was that you could program these these things. It's, so uh, it's like organic kind of like body horror kind of thing. And so they could be used for anything. And also, I mean, Kleist is just one of those scientists who's kind of given a free reign and has no control over him. So he's just doing stuff because he can. So I mean, I think there's one bit where he's just got all these live heads of humans, his subjects just roll, just rock lined up. And the editor said, you know, why are they there? I said, we're not going to explain it. We just done. He's just a mad bastard. And so he's just done these things because he can. You know, I'd read some literature about German, uh, German scientists, so Russian scientists 
keeping live dogs' heads alive, you know. So, and I thought, okay, you know, just because they could and things as well. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, okay, he's just a crazy dude. He's, he's done stuff like that, but he does. A, a, there's a thing at the back where you know he's trying to create these programmable organisms. So yeah, so that that was from, from what I can, I can remember. Yeah, it was just that he. It, it, there was like this Cronenberg kind of vibe. I was trying to get you know where it's like programmable matter and repurposing stuff. Sorry, there's, there's no deeper meaning. I do apologize. Similar to Delius of the Species and Genocide, our team of protagonists escape, seemingly promising further adventures that never manifest. Again, a fun story that deflates somewhat at the halfway point. To me, a king alien is too obvious a gimmick to impress, and there's no real novelty to it as presented. It's basically just a big drone with some chromium age pointy bits. That said, God bless the English for still being able to tell satisfying short stories, with each chapter in the overall rogue story being a favorite of the Aliens comics I've read so far. I do feel the characters were ultimately a bit slight, but they're more likable and generally better realized than the surviving crews of any of the other tales to date. Let's face it, if they weren't associated with Newton Hicks, would you really root for more of Nicks and Hoot even after spinning three miniseries with them? According to Xenopedia, the novel greatly expands this story and is considerably kinder to the Colonial Marines. A group of novel-specific characters on Charon launch an insurrection against Kleist, and a squad of Marines killed off in the comic instead survived to aid them. While one of the survivors of the comic dies, a character barely mentioned in the comic is one of the main rebels, and even starts a romance with Palmer before joining her and escaping the planet. I really wanted to write it myself. I was itching to do some pro. I really wanted to write myself. The, the guy who was the spy, the industrial espionage agent, they swapped some things around there or did something different. But um, so I was like, oh, okay. But you know, hey ho. Yeah, but I, I did. I, I did read. I, I read a lot of the, those novels at the time, knowing the music and spears. Because again, dearth of material. When something comes out, you just grab it. I was okay with it. It's, you know, it's nice to have a book out. You, know? you just wish your name was on the cover somewhere or something like that, because it's just appeals to the ego. Yeah. But otherwise, yeah, I, I, I was okay with it. More often than not, because you go, oh, that's a really good idea. I wish I'd thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna go, damn, oh, damn, okay. Somebody playing in the corner of your world and you didn't have any control over it, but it was like, that's still your stuff. It was like somebody coming in and trying to close them. <laughs> it seems like, and so yeah, it's, 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 it's flattering. I mean, in all fairness, I've done the same with other people's work as well sometimes, you know, like I say, when you do the license stuff, you are taking somebody else's property and embellishing it. The comic was eventually serialized in Aliens magazine with Duncan Fegredo penning a new cover related to the story for issue number 22. The story is also been collected in a trade paperback numerous times, with new cover paintings being produced by Nelson and John Bolton. The King Alien, now more commonly called the Rogue Alien, has been referenced many times since the miniseries. The Rogue Alien has been turned into an Eagle Moss figurine and a sideshow collectible statue. Other elements of the Rogue miniseries have crept up in later Aliens lore, but that's a story for another time. As you might expect for a podcast about aliens that often, pretty much inevitably references Predator from the perspective of a person fairly apathetic toward the latter lesser franchise, a few people People hit me up on social media regarding the new Hulu streaming release, Prey. I've been curious about the movie for months. I was excited enough to watch it as near to release as I could while still being a grown-ass man with responsibilities. Given that this episode has been delayed in part by a desire to give at least a cursory overview of Predator comics released in the period leading up to Aliens Rogue, coverage of Prey dovetails nicely into the historical settings for Bloody Sands of Time and the Dark Horse comic serials. Plain fact is that Predator isn't as versatile a property as Aliens, having more in common with a slasher film franchise than a science fiction one. My girlfriend likes the first Predator, but has been too tied up with work and online gaming to settle into Prey yet. Still, we had a conversation about the nature of the Predators, and how she initially thought their advanced technology should evolve more over time. If Predator
Predator is set 300 years in the past, and as Xenomorph's future begins exactly one additional century from our own 2022, an argument could be made that we should see a lot more variants in the Predators over that expanse. My partner argued that a race with interstellar capabilities would be so far advanced, it would only make sense that the Predator hunting parties were intentionally employing archaic tools as a philosophy. My thinking is that even modern day bow hunters demonstrate obvious advancements in the manufacturing of their supplies with stronger lightweight compound tools. Next thing nobody carves their own bow and arrow out of raw materials, certainly not relatively large groups of seasonal hunting parties active in a seemingly endless number of settings. I'm only tackling the Predator in comics as a tangent of Aliens coverage, so I don't know much about their expanded lore and I'm theorizing in ignorance. As a casual viewer, my assumption is that the Predators have little to no technology of their own design. I just don't see any Predators in lab coats wearing prescription safety goggles performing R&D. Surely the Predators managed to kill a technologically superior species and just stole their shit? I mean, we've had Cuba embargoed since the 1960s, so they've more or less gotten by with maintaining decades-old automobiles, but I don't see them developing and manufacturing EVs anytime soon. You look at something like Prey, where they have targeting lasers for rapid-fire metal bolts, and you can see how the Predators probably just modded the trigger system to accommodate scavenged plasma casters created by some other party. But again, I just looked up Yaucha and learned it is apparently pronounced Yaucha, so I'm clearly no expert on these fuckers. The point is, the Xenomorph life cycle demonstrates more variety than centuries of Predator technology and culture. From feudal Japan to the 23rd century, the Predators are so static in tools and techniques as to be the sci-fi equivalent of a Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees. They kill a bunch of things in a defined area with vague stipulations using techniques and tools that mostly come down to a few melee weapons and the odd shooting. Do Predator ships even have offensive capabilities? Because they look like the crab equivalent of the Reavers from Firefly held together with spit and bailing wire. My point is that once you get past the novelty of different settings and the technology available for use against the Predators, the Predators themselves are so predictable across the vast expanses of time that by their nature the franchise is going to have more in common with product than cinema. It took the fandom time to embrace the relatively modest tweaks offered by Predator 2 and Predators, with the sad stab at marvelization that was the Predator still broadly reviled. I feel comfortable tackling Prey as a solo bonus feature at the back end of an Aliens comic podcast because there isn't enough meat on its bones to warrant its own group podcast. It's an acoustic cover of Predator, slowed down with a girl singer on a piano, maybe a mandolin worked in to replace the electric guitars. I'm obviously not the critical drinker or Midnight's Edge over here, waging a war against wokeness and the SJWs. Hell, the people who were wondering about my thoughts on Prey were probably as motivated by my relative embrace of girl power as they were theories that its demonstration here might win me over to Predator fandom. You know that you're dealing with a bad faith actor if they get all up in arms about the Native American cast and female lead. Like the morons bleeding about Star Trek becoming woke 50 fucking years after the show featured the first interracial kiss involving a rare black female series regular in the 1960s. They're just clowning themselves by opening their foolish mouths to reveal a lack of mental faculties to interpret the basic text of the material. Partly, I think it's lame that Danny Glover role-playing as Martin Riggs can best the Predator because he's much less of a physical specimen than Dutch. But also, his character doesn't demonstrate the cunning and tenacity that were the actual key to Dutch's survival. Like Ripley, Dutch is a final girl who succeeds by outsmarting and outmaneuvering an alien, not with raw muscle and firepower. Adrian Brody did much the same with his lanky anti-hero in Predators, adding more of Ripley's teamwork, but mostly sticking to Dutch's playbook. The Predator franchise has always offered diverse casting of future political candidates of all colors, whether black, Latino, Asian, Native American, or even Green Party. 
hell, Sonny Landon even claimed to be part Jewish. So he has that in common with Adrian Brody, along with being a problematic nut job. Brief aside, Adrian Brody bought and renovated a castle in upstate New York for Elsa Pataki, who then dumped him for Chris Hemsworth. I'll never get tired of that story. And it would be so sad if Brody didn't sign an open letter in support of the child rapist that won him an Oscar. Anyway, the point is that Predator has been trying to alien since the first movie, but we literally just want alien. What we want from Predator is variations on one hunting a bunch of people that the audience likes and roots for in an interesting setting. The last theatrically released Predator movie gave us a bunch of people that the audience couldn't stand and expanded universe bullshit that nobody wanted. With the added baggage of Aliens vs. Predator movies and the initial poor reaction to every single Predator sequel, the franchise has picked up such a stink that the right move was to get back to basics and praise about as basic as you can get. Native American tribes in the Old West battling evil colonizers who were pointedly othered by having them be non-English speaking like redskin savages in the Old Westerns, but with a slightly less technologically advanced Predator. This is a feature-length, simple pleasure, dark horse comic serial. This is not a challenging, daring motion picture. We've been successfully rehabbing the image of Native Americans as sympathetic protagonists since the 1970s. The isolated period setting is great for COVID filming restrictions, with all the cost breaks of a Canadian production within driving distance of metropolitan Calgary. There's a small cast of mostly unknowns, and the only animal that isn't obvious, inexpensive, fleeting CGI is an untrained dog. The weapons are almost all sticks, sometimes with small bits of metal attached, or muskets and flintlocks fired once each at a distance at smoke or an invisible target. So long as your cast is competent with light dialogue and some physicality, all you really need is a decent director and adept editing. Predator was always an alien ripoff, so leaning into that with a strong female lead leans that much further into the derivation and offers a built-in expanded audience. People who like general girl power can join the boys who can still root for Sarah Connor, and you even get the hate watch from the misogynist to fuel their angry rants. Despite what the stupidest of them will claim, Nauru is not a Mary Sue in any way. She's Luke Skywalker whining about wanting to pick up some power converters at Tashi Station, who bumblefucks her way through an adventure with a lot of help from her friends before finally managing to prove herself. One of the worst things in modern discourse was the regressive fanboys embracing the term arc, but the hero's journey is seen to and by the book, like Joseph Campbell with scripture. Amber Mid-Thunder carries her unforgiving lines, is relatable and expressive, and serves as a credible heroine. I think she's going to be book solid for the next several years at least. Hopefully in something besides variations of the same, because I think she's got range and I like looking at her. Dakota Beavers has a fascinating face that looks like he came straight out of a comic book, even when it isn't literally painted on. I just saw a Twitter user nominate him for the Crow remake, and yes please take advantage of his perfect presence and musculature for that role, once Pennywise's version of that eternally cursed property inevitably falls apart. I actually dug all of the indigenous actors in this production, even the little shits to beat the fuck out of Nauru in some weird ass tough love session while trying to put the lady to lady in her place. Keep in mind, realistically, Nauru should be probably about 12 years old. They're probably 14 or 15 years old. So it's a little less weird that way. 10 Cloverfield Lane accomplished so much with three leads in a basement doing PG-13 horror on a $15 million budget. And Dan Trachtenberg gets as much bang for the buck on an only slightly larger scale. He clearly deserves more opportunities outside TV, especially given that his TV includes episodes of Black Mirror and The Boys. I will admit that I think The Princess spoiled me when it comes to fight choreography involving early 20s women weighing a buck 20 and standing less than halfway between five and six feet tackling armies. Joey King's character in The Princess could more arguably be a Mary Sue, but really she's just a superwoman who you can buy kicking enormous amounts of ass because of how well and brutally it's presented.
it. I'd love to see the people who made that dumber and less loved, but funner Hulu original do a comic book movie. Yeah, I know the optics of plugging a white feminism fantasy while viewing a super rare Native American genre phenomenon aren't great, but there's a very firm consensus on Prey that I don't want to just recite. I love the logo treatment that makes Prey instantly recognizable as a Predator sequel without burdensome colons. The movie made me recognize how much more cognizant I am of Xenomorph acid blood than the Yuhuyas fluorescent green goo. And it's especially striking in the marketing materials featuring Naru wearing it as face paint. Prey lacks the over-the-top cheesy kicks of the original and most of the sequels, but there also seems to be a generation of viewers who can't stand anything that isn't firmly grounded in a semblance of a reality that may embrace this. My buddies had a text session on our reactions and we all liked it, but at the end of the day it's probably only the fourth best Predator movie. My only regret is that in sheer number of entries, there's a better consistency of quality than the Aliens franchise can lay claim to. Where a case can be made that there's only two good ones. I mean, they're actually great ones, all-timers, but try telling yourself that during a Prometheus viewing. Hell, I like Prey that much more just recognizing how much better a reboot cool it is than Aliens Covenant. Colin duly noted. 21st Century Boys. Amaran Media Genesis. Baba Lament. Between the Pages Blog. Billy Hines. C.H. C.Quare. Chris Dunford, Chris Lydon, Comics Classicos, The Comic Crush, Dear Watchers, A Marvel What If Podcast, Del Dracula, Doc Strange, Dirk Ashton, Ed Moore, Instant Lamar the Revenger, Fan Holes Podcast, History of Comics on Film, Illegal Machine, I Was Joe Is, James Newell, Jeffrey Brown, They Them, Keith G. Baker, King Size Comics, Jive Size Fun Podcast, Mark Wilkins, Matt N. Commissions Open, Max's Pro Choice and anti nazi Mike at Rihanna Mike. Mike is Sinavius to me. No Gun Kid. Both of Zachariah, Edward Lose, Paul K. Bisson, Randy Caldwell, Ryan Daly, Satin Tights, a 101 podcast, Siskoid, Steve Ingleston, Superbound, Wayne Burroughs, William Simpson, 101 Warrior for Peace podcast, Zwick Jameson. Del Dracula wrote, came across this going through by Treasure Horde, signed by the indomitable hand of Adam Hughes, featuring a trading card. We'll put it on the blog. Legal Machine wrote, Yes, I saw Aliens vs. Predator with Frank. I vividly remember booing when the credits came up. Jeffrey Brown wrote, Now this makes me want to read these comics. This is new to me. Like, how have I been sleeping on reading these comics? Listening to your coverage does excite the horror fan in me. To go find these omnibus collections so I can read them. I have played a few of the video games and watched the movies. I like how weird these comics look on artistic level. Sam Keith, Kelly Jones, Nelson, etc. I really like the coloring in the few books I have read, like the adaptation of Alien 3. There's a comic I know I have in my collection and played the Capcom arcade beat-em-up. And finally, the artist on Rogue, who I tagged into a tweet, William Simpson, wrote, Ha, thanks. You should get Ian Edgington on for all the big info. Coming in September... Dark Horse presents Aliens Earth Angel with special guest Derek William Crabb.